Southview. Good morning. How are you guys this morning? So glad to be with you guys this morning. So uh, a little update. Um, so uh, last week you guys know that Scott was off doing a wedding. He was out of town. Uh, so you didn't see him up here last week. And so he came back and he went to work on Monday, and you know, I mean, you know how it is when you come into the office on Monday. Everything is just piled up, and so he's working in the office all day Monday. Goes home Monday night, and he's just not feeling well. So he goes and, and gets, uh, goes and gets uh, the Rona test, and he came back positive on Tuesday. So as a result, even though he was not really in close proximity with the rest of the staff, the church, out, out of an overabundance of caution, uh, because they love you guys and because they don't want to expose anybody unnecessarily, they had been in contact Everyone minus Kelly. Kelly was not in the office on Monday. Um, they, they decided to quarantine, which is, which is exactly what they should have done. And so as a result, uh, you've got me today. So, uh, so <laughs> uh, Brad called to the bullpen. He went with the righty. And, uh, and, and, you know, and I'll tell you one thing, too. I was listening to these guys warm up this morning. And, and it's absolutely amazing that Scott had already planned on doing an acoustic set because part of the, part of the worship team was already out of town this weekend. And then he, and he can't be here this morning, and so he, he, uh, he asks Will and Jeff, and uh, they're warming up this morning, it's going to be an absolute blessing. It's amazing to me that he's got so many talented musicians and vocalists that, uh, that three-quarters of the team can be down and out, uh, and yet it's still awesome. So uh, praise God for that. A couple of quick announcements, you will see them in your bulletin. Um, there is a men's breakfast coming up on uh, the 7th, I believe, November 7th at 8 a.m., you want to text breakfast to the, uh, the number on the screen, and that'll get you signed up for that. Um, there is a, uh, a new member presentation Sunday, uh, October 25th. That'll be next week. Uh, and also, one more thing. Have you guys noticed that on Halloween, we don't do the trunk or treat anymore. We go into the neighborhoods, which is, which is fantastic. I mean, you know, and, and Southview provides you with everything you need. They give you all of the best candy so that you can have the best house. Uh, they, they give you the, the, uh, the hot dogs. Uh, they'll set you up with some Bibles that you can pass out to the kids. I mean, you just basically get everything you need to make it an, the best house in the neighborhood. And then you get a, a few of your friends from church to go out there and minister to the kids as they come through. It's a fantastic outreach. So if you're interested in that, you can text the word Halloween to the number uh, that is on the screen. So that being said, I hope you guys are ready to worship today. We're excited that you're here, and I uh, can't wait to worship with you this morning. morning, everybody. Y'all want to stand and worship with us?
when we hear those two words, amazing grace, put together so much, they kind of lose their, they lose their spark. And when we think about it, amazing grace, amazing grace, what does that actually mean? What does that actually mean? And it means that we would be so enamored with the grace of God that we don't have anything else left to focus on. That we would be able to solely be just blown away by the grace of God that in our lives, that we as sinners and as wretches before God, that he would bring grace to us. And that we have no way to even imagine the amount of grace that was put into our lives solely on God's purpose. And that everything in our lives would be pointed to Calvary. And that's just an absolute miracle. I think we need, we need to refocus how we hear those words. And it's just an absolute, absolute amazing message. Let's sing at Calvary. Years are spent in vanity and pride, caring that my Lord was crucified, and knowing that it was for me he died at Calvary. By God's word at last my sin I learned. Bye. 
the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship His holy name, sing like never before, oh my soul, worship your
All right. What a fantastic job. I told you guys you guys were going to be blessed by that. Absolutely amazing. Let's give them one more, one more round if you don't mind. So, so cool to watch. Uh, Jeff's just talented. Will's growing up so fast. It's amazing to see. Uh, you know, he's up here uh, at uh, 17 leading worship. How cool is that? Um, so, uh, so this morning, um, I, I wanted, last week, my wife and I, we traveled um, a little bit further up north of Fayetteville to go visit some family. Uh, we had a funeral to go to, and, uh, and it was my great aunt. And so it, it was kind of a funeral, but it was really more of a celebration of life. Uh, she was 95 years old. She was just this amazing woman, and she was surrounded by her family. She was surrounded by people that loved her. And, uh, and the service was just, it was amazing. It was really, really a, a nice service. And, and, uh, and, and one of the husbands of one of her grandkids got up and, and delivered uh, just a, a beautiful eulogy. And, and what he started off with was Proverbs 31. And so you ladies will know that like as soon as you say Proverbs 31 at a funeral, you're like, oh, oh, I, I love that. Like at, at mine, that's what I want. I want to live a life that when People show up at my funeral, somebody that is from my legacy stands up and they, they go through Proverbs 31 and that would be awesome. And, and this guy did a phenomenal job. He went point by point and he laid out her life as she had lived her life according to Proverbs 31, living a life dedicated to the Lord uh, and, and how she grew her family. It was just beautiful. And I got to thinking, I said, well, where's the guy's verse? Right? Like Proverbs 31 is an entire chapter dedicated to this amazing godly woman. And, and you know, and, and to be sure, the Bible is full of examples for men. Right? Don't get me wrong. I mean, we've got plenty of examples. But they're not all the ones that I want at my funeral. Right? Like, I, I, I love Peter. Love Peter. But he denied Christ three times. And so if they start talking about Peter at my funeral, I'm, I'm going to be like, whoa, 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 hang on. Right? Uh, I, I love Paul. But Paul was the chief of all sinners. He, he persecuted and killed Christians, so I, I'm not sure that I want him at my funeral either. right? Um, and, and there's all these amazing characters. Think about David. right? I mean, David, he had a heart after God's own heart. An amazing, amazing uh, man of God. But look at all the flaws. right? I, I don't know. that There's not that kind of universal set of, of verses like we could claim for men like, uh, like uh, Proverbs 31 for women. And so as I got to thinking about it and I got to studying, I landed in the book of Job. And so if you will turn with me this morning to the book of Job, uh, if, if you're not familiar where it's at, don't worry. Open up your Bible. falls about halfway through the book. You should be somewhere around in Psalms. If you back up a book, uh, you will be in the book of Job. So if you guys will follow me to, to Job 31. give you a little background. Uh, the book of Job, it, it, it's an amazing book. Job is a man... Um, that is extremely, extremely faithful. Uh, you know the story. It says that he walks with God. Uh, he was a, an amazing man in the community. He uh, had a great family. He had his own farm. He had his own business. He was well-respected in the community, and he loved God. And then all of a sudden, one day, the devil begins to, uh, to take away things one by one by one. God allows the devil to intervene in Job's life, and he begins to take away the things that are so precious to Job, and I think that are so precious to all of us. He takes away his family. He takes away his wealth. He takes away his business. He eventually takes away his health. And Job is sitting here in that first 30 chapters as everything is being taken away, and he's a faithful but a broken man. And, 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 and he wants to believe. He wants to hang on to the promises of God. And one of my favorite quotes from this kind of time, uh, as, as an author wrote about Job, he says that he can imagine Job saying this, God, help me not to question in the dark what I have known to be true in the light. And I, I love that quote because you can envision that Job is going through the darkness and he's trying to hang on to the promises that God has, but he just can't see them. And he makes this plea in Job 31. And so, men, maybe you've been there before. Maybe you're like Job. Your life is going along pretty well. You feel like you're on top of the world, and then all of a sudden it comes crashing down. And you're left dissecting it. And you look back on your life. It's what Job does in Job 31. And he begins to ask God, God, please tell me that I've been a good man. 
Maybe you've been there when things haven't gone right and you begin to look back in your life and you say, somebody please tell me that I've been a good man. Somebody please tell me that I've gotten these things right. And so as a result of this final plea from Job to God, we begin to see what Job lays out for us to be a man of integrity. Job makes a final defense for his life to God as him saying, please tell me that I was a man of integrity. And so we can learn a lot from the book of Job. We can learn a lot, especially from Job 31, about what it means to be a man of integrity. So what's integrity? That's probably the first question that we should tackle, right? Well, the root of that word is the same one that we get for the the word integer. And so the only reason I know that is because I'm teaching my kid uh, algebra. But integer, right? Um, Integer is a wholeness. It's a solid number. Uh, Or integrated, that you would take two things and you would integrate them together so that they were a whole piece. That's where we get that word integrity. And what it means is basically for guys is this. You take the actions of your life. You take the, the things that you do. And then you take the word of God, which is truth, and they are together, right? That the actions that you live in your life match up with the word of God so that it is integrated together. And we would call that a man of integrity. And so uh, Job is going to walk us through. And if you look at the entire book of, or the entire chapter of Job 31, there's going to be like 10 of these. I don't have time for that. My goal is to get you to K&W before the Methodists get there, right? That's my goal. So we're not, we're not going to go all the way through uh, all ten of them. But we're going to tackle about five. And the reason, a couple of different reasons. Number one is I only have about 30 or 45 minutes. Uh, but number two is I, I think as men of God, we should be in the Word daily, right? And if, and if you walk into this room and I give you all ten, then you've got nothing to go search for. But if I give you five and get you interested, you'll go find the other five on your own, right? And so that's the hope. And so let's start with number one. Uh, that, that Job would tell us, and it's in verses 1 through 4. Job said, to be a man of integrity, you need to be a man of purity. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully upon a young woman. For what is our lot from God above, and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is it not ruin for the wicked, disaster for those who do wrong? Does not he see my ways and count my every step? So you see here, the very first thing that Job sets up is a covenant. Now, I love the covenant in the Old Testament. It, 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 it's, it's like a really big deal. It's not a contract. It's not a promise. A covenant. It's a really, really dedicated commitment. Most of the time in the Old Testament, it's sealed with blood. And when I mean sealed, I mean it is unbroken. When you say that you are entering into a covenant... You don't take it lightly, and you don't break it, right? And so he's using a very, very strong word here, that he is making a covenant with his eyes. Now, now why in the world would Job say he's going to make a covenant with his own eyes? Well, let me tell you, if you haven't figured out, Job has figured out something about men that we need to know. Men are mostly visual creatures, right? And our eyes are like the cameras for our brain. And every minute of your life, you're taking pictures with your eyes. And they're being put into your brain. And Job knows something very interesting. He knows that when the picture occurs and it goes into your from your eyes into your brain, that eventually it goes from the brain into your heart, that eventually it goes to your heart to your hands, right? And he knows that he needs to make a covenant with his eyes so that he does not end up with those visuals in his brain, right? Now, let let me tell you, I don't know what was going on in the land of Ur 4,000 years ago, right? Maybe Job didn't have VidAngel for Netflix, right? Uh, Or or maybe Job didn't have that filter on his cell phone so that he didn't go to the inappropriate websites. Or or maybe Job lived uh, on the Bragg Boulevard equivalent in the land of Ur. I don't know, right? But for some reason or another, in the land of Ur where Job lives, he is surrounded by temptation. And the temptation, quite frankly, he says, are young women. Now, this is where you're going to have to use your imagination a little bit because I know that there's no way a man growing up in America in 2020 can understand that type of temptation, right? I mean, if we're honest, it's everywhere, right? You, you can't drive down Owen Drive without seeing a billboard. You can't cut on your computer without seeing an image. You can't walk through any store without seeing way more than you should possibly see, right? And so Job knows that the very first thing that he needs to do is set up a red line in his life. Now, what do I mean by red line? Well, if I were to ask you today, it's a pretty good audience. If I were to ask you today, how many of you want to commit adultery, right? Put up your hands. Anybody? Anybody? Nobody. 
I'm going to say this again at 11 o'clock, and I promise you that nobody will put their hands up, right? But, but the truth of the matter is that 60 to 70% of marriages deal with infidelity. So how do you get from nobody wanting to commit adultery to it ending up in more than half of our marriages? How do you get there? And I believe the answer is found right here in these first few verses of Job. Job says that I'm not drawing the red line in the sand at adultery. I'm not making that my goal that I don't commit adultery. He says, I'm going to back up a step. And and so rather than saying I'm not going to commit adultery, I'm going to put my red line a little bit further back. And I'm not even going to put my red line at saying I go to dinner with the girl from work. I'm not even going to put my red line at that I have that late night conversation with the girl from work. I'm not even going to put my red line as that I stalk her Instagram page and send her direct messages. I'm not going to draw my red line there. He says, I'm going to back up all the way over here, and I'm going to draw my red line at the second look, right? Because, man, if you know this world, there's no way that you can avoid the first look. It's everywhere. But you can make a covenant with your eyes to avoid the second look, right? So that it doesn't go from your eyes to your brain to your heart to your hands. And Job knows that if he backs up and makes that red line all the way over here, then there's no way that he's going to get it all the way over there, right? Because the truth of the matter is, is that you make your decision here. If you get here, if you get here, if you get here, and then you get to your red line, you can't stop it. You're already there, right? And so Job says that if you want to be a man of purity, you draw the red line at the second look. You make that covenant with your eyes. Now, I love, when I was growing up, my brother and I, we went fishing a lot. Loved to go fishing. And so, you know, we, we lived close to Lake Up Church, and we would go down, and we had the canoe down there close to the lake, and we'd have this, oh, we had this old rickety metal canoe that we would jump in, and we, we'd paddle off to the back of the lake, and we would find the honey hole in the lake, right? We, that's where the fish was, and I can't tell you where it is, because uh, you guys would go fishing there, right? You got to keep it a secret. And we would go back to the honey hole, and, and we, would, we, we would throw, uh, we use bobbers, right? So we're, we're high tech. We use bobbers and worms and hooks. And we, we would get back there in the per, between the cypress trees, and we'd throw out that bobber. And it didn't take long, right? And that bobber's like tick, You see it kind of dancing around top of the water. And like, if you've never been fishing before, your first reaction is, let me get that thing out of there. No, no, you got to wait. Wait about 10 or 15 seconds, and that fish is going to take that hook. And that bobber's going to disappear, and you've got that fish, right? It's a good illustration of sin in men's life. Um, you want to nibble, you want to nibble, you want to nibble. You think, I'll just take a little bit of a nibble, and I'll taste that bait. And the truth is, you can't nibble without getting the hook. It doesn't matter. I can tell you how many times, how many fish I've caught out of that lake. If i got a nibble, i got a bite, right? And men think we can manage our sin, we think we can, we, we can start here, and that's not really a big deal. It's just a nibble. And then I can move over here, and that's just a nibble. And I move over here, and that's just a nibble. And then you get over here, and you realize you've got the hook, right? And all of a sudden, the devil's pulling you out of the lake. And I, I think about it a lot because the devil's crafty, right? Have you ever seen an old fisherman, like a guy who is seasoned, and, and he's just an old guy that's been fishing all of his life? He doesn't miss many fish. He knows what he's doing. The devil's like that. The devil's an old fisherman, and he's been fishing for a long time. And he's caught smarter, more experienced, more savvy men than you or me. Right? And he knows exactly what bait to put on your hook. Now, Job's bait is clearly uh, looking at another woman. That might not be your bait. Your bait may be completely different. Right? Your bait may be uh, alcohol, or it could be drugs, or it could be anything else. But the idea is if you nibble, 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 you're going to get caught. And I think about this a lot because what are the fish thinking? Like I would go fish at the back of the lake and I would put my line in and I would catch a fish. I'd yank the fish out of the water and I would throw that bobber back to the exact same spot to catch another fish and then catch another fish and then catch another fish. And I think about like us as guys too. You're living in a world and you're watching your buddies get yanked out of that lake. They nibble, 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 catch the hook, boom, they're gone. Nibble, 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 catch the hook, the boom, they're gone, divorced. Nibble, 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 catch the hook, boom, they're gone again. And, and these guys are looking at the hook thinking, man, that thing looks good. No, it doesn't. You're going to get the hook. I, I think about um, with, with Job, why does Job pick this? Why does Job pick not to look at a young woman? And I think that what Job really is getting after is he's married. He's a married man. And he knows what his standard of beauty should be. His standard of beauty should be his wife. 
And if he looks at too many other women, then it warps his standard of beauty. He understands that. And I love back in Genesis, right? So Adam is created. God creates Adam, and he says, it's not good for man to be alone. And he says, I will bring him a woman, and he brings him a woman. Now, notice what he didn't do, right? He didn't bring him 12 women and say, hey, Adam, why don't you look at these, and you pick, and you see which one you like, right? One of my favorite parts about this story is that he puts Adam to sleep and then creates Eve. I didn't need his input. I don't want to hear from you. I'm going I'm to make you the perfect woman for you, and I know what that is, and you don't. Right? You think you do, but you don't. So you just need to go to sleep. Let me make her. I'll bring her to you. Right? What else does he not do? The other thing he doesn't do is he doesn't bring him Eve and then say, look, why don't you try this one for a little while? And then you let me know if you see anybody else walking around uh, the garden. And then if you like them better, then we'll just switch them out. Right? He doesn't do that. He says, here's Eve. This is your standard beauty. Now, I don't know what Eve looked like. Right? Uh, I've never seen any pictures of her. I assume they didn't have cameras back then. But I don't know what Eve looked like. But she was Adam's standard of beauty. And so if Eve was a a blonde, then Adam liked blonde ladies. If Eve was a brunette, then then Adam liked brunette ladies. If Eve was skinny, then then Adam liked skinny women. If Eve was a little bit thicker, then Adam liked thick women. Right? If Eve tried the Garden of Eden Atkins diet and she was a little thick and then she got skinny, then his standard of beauty changed. And now he likes skinny women again. The idea is that, gentlemen, your standard of beauty is your bride. And that should remain your standard of beauty. And Job understood that. That's why he said, I'm not going to let my eyes wander. Because God is a great creator. God created three and a half billion women on this planet. They're unique and they're wonderful and they're beautiful and they're different. But yours has to be focused on your bride. And so if you look at verse 3, in verse 3 he says this. He said, doesn't disaster come to the unjust and misfortune to the evildoers? What he's basically saying is all sin gets exposed. Sin gets exposed. You you think you're crafty. You think you're the smartest guy in the room. You think you're not going to get caught. Job 31.3 says it's going to come out. It always does. Whether it comes out in words or whether it comes out in the way that you treat your wife and how you change and you don't honor her the way that you should honor, it eventually, it comes out. And then the last thing under this first idea is, who is Job asking? Look at 31.4. He says this, he says, Does he not see my ways and number all my steps? He's talking about God. So who is Job asking? Job is making this plea and he's saying, God, please tell me I'm a man of integrity. And then all of a sudden he says, but God numbers my steps and God sees all my ways. See, he doesn't ask his buddies. He doesn't ask the guy at work because they don't go home with him. They don't know what kind of man he really is. It's very easy for us to hide our true nature from the people that we spend time with, right? And then we go home and we live a completely different life. That's not a man of integrity, right? And the truth of the matter is you wouldn't ask your buddies anyway because you'll keep asking different buddies until you get the answer you want, right? But God always gives you the same answer because his word is truth. It doesn't change. It's always the same answer. And and I think that this is one of the things that amazes me about Job, is Job didn't ask his buddies, and he didn't ask his co-workers, he asked God. And God looks into Job's life, and he sees everything. He sees what you do when nobody's looking. He sees what you do when you're in your house and nobody else is home. Not only that, but he sees your heart, and he sees your motives. And Job is saying, search me, search me, and please tell me that I have been a man of purity. So I love, love that about Job. So the first one is a man of purity. The second one, be a man of honesty. So if you look in verses 5 and 6, Job says this. He says, if I have walked with falsehood or my foot has hurried after deceit, let God weigh me in honest scales and he will know that I am blameless. So so, so get this. It's fantastic visual because I like to hike. I like to hike in the mountains. And, uh, and the visual here is walking, right? If I've walked with, uh, if I've walked with deceit, if I've, if I've walked with lies, the idea is walking. And when you walk, you have to pick up every foot and you have to take step after step. Like I can't start here and just end up at those back doors back there. I actually have to take step after step after step after step. And I love this visual because he's saying that every single step you take is intentional, right? If, if you walk with dishonesty, then I tell a lie, I tell a lie, I tell a lie, I tell a lie. 
you end up over here because you've made intentional decision after intentional decision after intentional decision, right? And, and I know that for a lot of us, we've gotten so far down the path that it's really difficult to turn around. It's hard when you've lived a lie for a while and you've told lie after lie after lie and you get down the path and you look back and you realize, I'm very, very far from the truth. But it's still an intentional decision to go forward. You have to stop and say, I'm either going to walk back in truth or I'm going to continue to walk in a lie. Every single step you take is intentional. So there's two different verbs in this piece of scripture. And there's two different ideas of lying in this particular scripture. And I love the way that Job separates the two. So the first thing he says is that you walked or you wandered in falsehood. And the verb there is like a wandering type of thing. And a falsehood is, is kind of like, uh, you ask me a question. Like, let, let's pretend like I'm, I'm 16 again, a long time ago. And my parents said, hey, where are you going? Oh, well, I'm going to go to my buddy's house. And I just kind of leave it at that, right? But what I didn't tell them was I was actually going to pick up my buddy, and then we were going to a party across town, right? And so I can honestly tell my parents, I didn't lie, right? I didn't lie to you, but I didn't tell you the whole truth either, right? I left out pieces of information that made me look bad or, or would get me in trouble. And so that's kind of a falsehood. It's not really that I told you a lie. I just didn't give you all the information for you to get the right impression as to what was going on. And I love the verb that he uses here. It's like wandering. And what he means by that is that I really didn't start off the day trying to lie to my parents. They asked me a question that I really wasn't ready to stand on the truth for, and I just kind of wandered into it, right? We do that a lot. We do that a lot. It's not that we feel like we've lied to somebody, but we just haven't told them the whole truth, right? And so Job says you've got to be careful because you will wander into falsehood. And then the second verb that he uses is to hurry into deceit. Now, deceit is manipulation, Deceit is, I just straight up lied to you. And if you think about it, when people tell lies, they think them out a lot. They plan it, they think them out, they figure out how it's going to work, right? And they intentionally run down that path because they want to get what they want. And so he says you kind of wander through falsehoods or you rush off into deceit. And so there's two different things there that Job is getting at. And I think it's interesting that, I think for a lot of us, um, we try to tell the truth. For most people, we try to tell the truth. And I think for most of us, we end up wandering into falsehoods. And what Job is saying is, hey, try me either one. I'm a man of honesty. I haven't rushed to deceit, and I haven't wandered into falsehood. I've been truthful. Uh, and, and I think, too, I mean, how hard that is for Job. You think about circumstances of life. How many times have we justified wandering into falsehood because of the things that were going on? Hey, look, life's been tough. You really don't understand how this person's treated me. I had to tell them that. Oh, you don't understand where I came from. I, I really don't want to tell the people the truth about that. You don't understand my testimony. I've lived a really hard life, and I'm just not really ready to share that with somebody. You know, you, you, you have all of these excuses, but the truth is absolute. The truth is what the truth is all the time. And I wish there was some kind of fun three-step process that I could tell men how to be men of honesty, but there's not. There's just one thing. is to stand on the truth. You have to stand on the truth, and it's got to be an active stance. Or you will begin to wander in falsehoods. And I, I think, too, you stand on the truth over and over and over and over again. And that means sometimes you have to tell the truth even when it hurts. There are times that I've done stuff in my life that I've had to come clean and I've had to be truthful on. And it was difficult and it was painful. But when you stand on the truth, that's how you become a man of honesty. Right? So, number two is a man of honesty. Idea number three about being a man of integrity is to be a man of contentment. Job 7 through 8. If my steps have turned from the path, if my heart has been led by my eyes, or if my hand has been defiled, then may others eat what I have sown, and may my crops be uprooted. So kind of the, the first part of being a man of contentment is in that first verse. It says, if my steps have turned from the path. What is the path for a man? What's the path? What, what is he talking about here? And I think about, you know, God has a will for every single man's life that's in this room, right? He has an individual will for your life. He desires for you to live out the plan that he created you to. And God's an amazing God. He's an amazing creator. 
He knew you before he formed the universe. He created you exactly like you are. God doesn't make junk, right? Uh, and so he knew exactly what you needed in order to be able to accomplish the plans that he has for you, and he built you that way. He knew what passions you needed to go drive you off, and he gave you those passions. He knew what experiences in your life you needed to experience to prepare you for the work that he has for you. He molded you, and he created you, and he has a path for you. And it's okay, guys, to be content in that path. What I find, what, what I find a lot of times is that um, men are not necessarily content in the path that God has for them. I remember when I was younger, I had a teacher one time tell me, hey, you can do anything you want to do. And I thought about it for a little while, and I realized that, that's a lie. I can't really do anything I want to do. Because when I was growing up, Michael Jordan was king, right? Loved Michael Jordan, watched him play at Carolina, watched him play at Chicago. And as a, as a young man, man, that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to dribble down the lane. I wanted to jump over two or three guys. I wanted a two-handed dunk to win the championship. Look at me. It ain't happening, right? <laughs> like, you can lower the goal a little bit to maybe eight feet, and I can make it happen to get some third graders. I promise you that, right? <laughs> but it's not going to happen. And the idea is that that's not what God wanted for me. God wanted me to be the husband that I am. He wanted me to have the business that I have. He wanted me to live the life that I have. He wanted me to raise the children that I have. He didn't want me to be Michael Jordan. And as a man, I've got two different choices. I can be content that I'm never going to win an NBA championship or get a 10-day contract with the Bulls. I can be content that I live the life that God has for me, or I can abandon the life that God has for me, and I can go chase a dream that God never intended for me to chase. Right? And it all starts with contentment. Are you content in the path that God has for you? You know, and it's crazy because we spend all of this time comparing ourselves to others. Because social media makes it so much harder not to compare yourself to others. We, we were laughing, Rebecca and I went to the beach uh, not too long ago, and uh, you know, Instagram is this, you know, people put their lives on Instagram. What you see on Instagram is not true, right? Uh, most of the time, it's just not true. It's photoshopped. It's the perfect moment. You don't ever get to see any of the problems. People don't live Instagram lives. And so we're at the beach, and, and it's one of those days, you know, in North Carolina, it gets cold, it gets hot, right? And I'm thinking it's going to be warm that day, and it is not. It is cold. It is frigid. The wind is blowing so hard, it is blowing seaweed up on the beach. You can't get in the water. It's just cold, and we're sitting there looking at the beach, and there's these teenagers that are down on the beach, and they're playing in the water, and they're taking the Ill Instagram selfies, you know, and, and doing all that, and I'm thinking, you know what? They're going to Photoshop those. They're going to go put them on Instagram, and somebody's going to be like, man, they're just having the greatest time at the beach. And they got done taking their pictures, and they put on their blankets, and they ran back up to their condos, and they didn't even spend any time at the beach. But you look at it from the outside in, and you think, man, these people are having an amazing time. And it starts to wear away at your contentment because you think, why can't I have that? It's not real, right? You have what God has for you and your path. And so I think about what does it lead to? It leads to this idea of coveting. And coveting is looking at what God has given to somebody else and wanting it for yourself. You know, there's a reason why coveting is in the Ten Commandments. Because it leads to a lot of the other commandments. Like if we could just get rid of coveting, we wouldn't need the one for murder. You wouldn't need the one for adultery. You wouldn't need the one for lying. And you wouldn't need the one for, um, for, for stealing. You could just get rid of those four if people would just not covet. Right, Because coveting eventually is the gateway that leads you into all of those other sins. Those four are downstream. And, and I went back into uh, to Exodus 20.17. Exodus 20.17 is the one, thou shalt not covet. And he actually gives you instructions on what not to covet. Right? And if you look at Exodus 20.17, it says y'all shouldn't covet somebody's house. You shouldn't covet your neighbor's wife. You shouldn't covet the neighbor's ox, which is like their job because it was an agrarian society and they used oxes to work. And then you shouldn't cover your neighbor's donkey, which is how, which is his ride, is his car. That's how he got around, right? So you, you shouldn't covet all these things. And then just in case you wanted something that God did not want for you and it wasn't in the list, he says, or anything. And that word is Greek for anything, nothing. It means that what God gives you and what God desires for your life is enough because it's what he created you for. I think about... One of the greatest things that men can do is to be thankful and not complaining. <clears throat> you know, when you hear a complaining guy, you're immediately thinking, please be thankful. Be thankful for the things that God has given you in your life because they are absolutely amazing. 
I was thinking about, you know, Rebecca and I, uh, some of you guys know our journey um, through her brain cancer and God healing her from brain cancer, and she's been cancer-free for now over six years. But I remember we were, uh, we were at diagnosis day, and uh, for, we're kind of medical, and so, uh, you know, she's a doctor, and, and I've been around medicine for a long time, and, uh, and so we know a little bit about it. And, and when she got diagnosed with brain cancer, we were like, we don't want to know anything about it. You guys, you guys that are medical, I mean, you guys know, you, you don't want to know, right? There's just some things I'd rather not know. And so we didn't research it. We didn't spend any time trying to figure it out. And so she's got a, she's got a wonderful friend, um, and, and she's one of the, probably one of the best neurologists in North Carolina. And so she just said, look, you, you research it. You tell me what I need to know. I don't need to know everything. I don't want to know much. Just tell me what I need to know. And so I was on the phone uh, with her the day prior to us getting the diagnosis. Rebecca had already had brain surgery. They took out the tumor. They sent it off to be typed, uh, and they were going to tell us what kind of cancer it was. And I was talking to her, and she said, look, she said, I'm not going to tell you a lot. She said, but whatever it is, just don't let it be glioblastoma. And I was like, well, what do you mean? She said, life expectancy for that is, is no more than a year. She said, just don't let it be glioblastoma. And so we go to walk in the doctor's office, and he comes in, and he doesn't know that we don't know. And so he lays this little, uh, he lays this tablet down on the, on the table, and I look over at it, and it says glioblastoma, right? And so it's the one thing you don't want to hear. And I think, you know, we never waver from that point because God had given us the faith to go through. But at that moment, we looked at each other and said, you know, if it's only a year, it's going to be the best year we've ever had. And so for us, we always wanted to have a 50-year marriage, and so it's kind of a joke for us. It was like, we're going to live 50 years in one year, if that's what it is. If God chooses not to heal her, we're going to live 50 years in one year. And as, as of now, I think we've been married, what, 320 years? Something like that? So, but the idea is this, is that when you get that kind of a diagnosis, you can look at it one of two ways. You can either say, God, why me? And you can complain, and you can be bitter, and you can be upset, and you can waste that year. Or you can say, God, I'm thankful that you gave me this year. Because a lot of people don't even get that. Right? A lot of people lose a loved one at the blink of an eye. Right? And so you can either be thankful or you can be complaining. And Job says, be content with the path that God has for you. Be content with the gifts that God has given you. Don't be coveting other things. Number four, to be a man of equity Verses 13 through 15, if I have denied justice to any of my servants, whether male or female, when they had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when called to account? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not the same one form us both within our mothers? So don't miss this about Job. Job is the oldest book in the Bible. Uh, we don't know exactly when it was written, and I don't mean by events. I mean, clearly Genesis is when stuff started, right? But by, by, by writing, and, and I love that detail because when Job walked the earth, he didn't have the Bible. He didn't have this, right? And, and I think about how strong his faith was. And when I grew up, I had godly men in my life that mentored me. I had the Bible that I could read and spend time studying God's Word. I had the visual image of Christ walking earth and showing me how to be, be a good man. I had 2,000 years of Christian thought and research, and, and, and I have pastors on the Internet. I've got a great pastor here at Southview that can teach me all of these resources. And yet there's a lot of times that I feel like Peter. I feel like my faith wavers, and, and I'm challenged, and then I believe, and then I don't believe, and then I believe, and then I don't believe, and it's just a struggle internally with all of this evidence. Job didn't have any of it. All Job had was to walk faithfully with God. And I think it's amazing some of the insight that he gives us without ever having the first written word, even of Moses. <clears throat> so Job is speaking of his servants. And I, I want to, he says, If I've denied justice to any of my servants, whether male or female, will they have a grievance against me? Or what do I do when God confronts me? And then I want you to pick up on this. Did he not... Did he who made me in the womb make him, and did not the same one from us make, make both of us within our mothers? This is before Job knew anything about the Imago Dei. This is before Job read Psalm 139 that says that you were knit together in your mother's womb. He had never heard either one of those verses, but he innately knew that God created both of us. You know, this idea of the Imago Dei is something that I, I believe that we should hang our hat on as Christians. 
What it means is that God created every single person in this room in his image. And if, God, if you were the last person on the face of the earth, God would have sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you. And that's how God sees you, each and every person. You know, but that's not how the world sees you. The world believes in this idea called extrinsic value. In this idea that you are what you do. That your value is defined by your job. Your value is defined by your skin color. Your value is defined by your gender. Your value is defined by how much money you have. That's the world. But that is not God's word. God's word in the Imago Dei and in Psalm 139 says he knit you together. And like we talked about before, God doesn't make junk. He doesn't make mistakes. He created you perfectly. You were his masterpiece, as it says in Ephesians. So God believes in this idea that the intrinsic value of a human is because they bear the imprint and stamp of God. And it says it in Genesis. And it says it in Psalm 139. And it says it in Job 31. Let me read it to you one more time just so that we don't miss it. He says, Did he not who made me in the womb make him? And did not the same one form us both within our mothers? He says, no, 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 I made both of you. You don't get to to treat people differently based on their sex or their gender or their, uh, their, their race or their socioeconomic status. And he's talking about his servants here, but you get the point. You can divide people among any characteristic. And Job says, no, 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 you don't get to do that. God made both of us in the womb. And then here's the crazy part. This is, this is where I think it really is kind of at a point of differentiation for me. Job says, test me. He asks God to test him. And that's totally different than we do. We ask other people to test us because they can't see what's really in our heart. And Job says, no, I want God to test me because I want him to see in my heart. You know, when I was younger, I used to think, because I make a lot of mistakes. I don't know if you guys do or not, but I do. I make a lot of mistakes. And I know that as a follower of Christ, there's going to be a day when I stand in front of God and, and I give an account for my life. Now, I'm covered with the blood of Christ. And so... But I still have to give an account for what he's done, what I've done with the resources and with all the, all, the, all the blessings that God's given me. And so there's going to be a time when I stand in front of God and God's going to say, hey, you did this, you did this, you did this, and he's going to kind of walk through it. And when I was younger, I used to think, well, you know, there's a lot of people, you know, and, and, and we're kind of all going to be going about the same time. So maybe he'll like a lot, like 30 minutes for me, and so maybe he'll miss a couple of things that I'm not really proud of. No, no. He's the creator of time. He's got all the time he wants. He's going to look at my life, and he's going to go back through it. And that's what Job is alluding to here. He's like, test me. Test me. My heart is pure. I have treated people with equity. You know, we we have a lot of stuff going on in America right now when it comes to race and gender and the isms and all that other stuff. And and I think that's fine. Whatever you want to be involved with is obviously fine. I, I think the politics stuff sometimes gets us off where we need to be. But what Job is saying here is none of that matters. What matters is what's right here. What matters is to be a man of integrity, it starts with you, how you treat people. And then as you walk as a man of integrity, people see that walk and they follow you. That's where it starts. And that's what Job talks about being a man of equity. And then the last thing is number five, to be a man of compassion. To be a man of compassion. Verses 16 through 23. If I have denied the desires of the poor or let my eyes of the widow or let the eyes of the widow grow weary. Now this is cool. So let me tell you a little bit before we get into the verse. I love love Southview. Love this church. Most Protestant churches are about 35, 65 men to women. Southview's not really like that. When you look out, you see a lot of men. Really, really cool thing. You see a lot of young men that love Jesus. Love it. And there's a lot of ministries here at Southview that do things for the community. There's a ministry here at Southview that, that goes and mows grass for people that can't mow their grass. And if a pipe breaks, they'll go fix the pipe. I mean, there's just all kinds of stuff that, that the men of Southview do to honor God. That's this first verse. If I have denied the desires of the poor or let the eyes of the widow grow weary. If I've kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless. But from my youth, I reared them as a father would. And from my birth, I guided the widow. If I've seen anybody perishing from lack of clothing or the needy without garments, it's the homeless ministry, it's faith to faith, face to faith. And their hearts did not bless me for warming them with the fleas from my sheep. If I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had influence in court, 
Then let my arm fall from the shoulder and let it be broken off at the joint, for I dreaded destruction from God, and for fear of his splendor, I could not do such things. You know, I think about these verses, and it really is what do we do here, right? Uh, are, <clears throat> are you actively involved in caring for widows and people that can't handle uh, some of the stuff around house? Are you actively working with children? Are you in the youth room raising some of the fatherless? Are you, what are you doing as men? And, and, I, and I, I love this verse because society's standard for men is so low. Society has an awful standard for men. Like, if you don't beat your wife, people consider you a good husband, right? That's how low our society has standards for men. And we've been beaten up for so long that we think, hey, if I'm just not a bad guy, then that makes me a good guy. That's not what God calls us to do. God doesn't call us just not to be bad men. God calls us to be a force of strong men that follow Jesus. It's a lot different of a standard. And so I love this from Job because he's like, look, I'm not just sitting around. I'm helping the widows. I'm helping the fatherless. I'm helping the poor. I'm working with the homeless. He's like, I'm out there. And I'm doing what you've called me to do. We can't be neutral in the fight. And the second thing I'll say about that is this. Is that men, God has given men a sense of strength. And I look out and I I see them. You know, men are strong. It's just one of the, the wonderful characteristics that God has given us. But if you work long enough with the youth, you'll find out that some of these younger men, they don't know what to do with that strength. They've never found a positive outlet. They've never found anything to do. They've never found a way that God has called them to make a difference in the world. And so that strength kind of builds up in them, and it builds up in them, and there's no outlet. And then all of a sudden, they explode into negative energy. And you see it. They head off in the wrong direction, exerting their strength for the wrong thing. Men, we were created to be strong, but we were created to have an outlet for that strength, which is God's kingdom. If you don't let it out, it will eventually explode into negative energy. So what now? What now? Um, To be a man of integrity, Job gives us five big ideas. He says, number one, make a covenant with your eyes. Men, be a man of purity. Number two, be known as a man of honesty. You know, the only way to do it is to do it consistently over a long period of time. Uh, Aristotle said that if you want to learn a discipline, then hang out with a man that has a reputation for it. Right? Right? You want to learn how to be a man of honesty, then hang out with a man that's got a reputation for it. Number three is be fully vested in the will of God for your life. There is nobody else called to do the work that God's called for you to do except for you. And if you don't do it and you go chase another dream, then it doesn't get done. That family doesn't get raised. That church doesn't get served. That community doesn't get won. All of the things that God called you to do don't get done. Number four, treat everybody with equity and honor them. And number five is serve Christ in your church with all of your strength. So I think, you know, um, when, when Brad asked me to, to preach, we were looking forward. And, uh, and I just, I generally, I like to just do whatever's coming next. But it didn't really work out this time because next week Brad is preaching from 2 Peter 3. And it's, uh, wives, submit to your husbands, even when that husband is not godly. And I thought, well, ha- what better thing to preach on today? I said, first of all, I don't want to do that. <laughs> all right, we'll let you, we'll let you do that. But... But second of all, how good would it be if the men of Southview and the men of Hope Mills didn't make that verse so hard for women, right? If we were men of integrity and we were men of Christ, and it was very, very easy for our wives to follow us. You know, I I think all the time, you know, women can't follow a parked car. And men think that they can just pull up and park and not do anything, and it makes them good men. you got to be moving. And so how do you do that? The idea is that as a man, as you follow Christ so closely that she can't tell which one she's following. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I love you and I thank you. I thank you for the men of Southview. You know, this is one of those things that really challenges us. I know it challenged me as I began to read it and study it because I began to ask the same questions of myself. God, am I a man of integrity? God, do I walk with these things? And You know, if you ask the right people, you might get the right answer, but that's not the answer I want. I want you to tell me. I want you to look at my life. I want you to tell me the things that I need to do to become that man of integrity. Because this is a great church. This is a great community. These are great families, and they need us to be men of integrity. I love every man in this building, and I pray that you will call them and raise them up.
to be great men of God that will influence their families, that will influence their church, that will win back their communities. We love you and thank you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hard times and conversations. No one should ever love me like you do. Sometimes my bad decisions define my false suspicions. No one should ever love me like you do. Take my hand somehow you